0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner, and I'm talking to Mary Toulouse, author of Instruments of Empire, Filipino Musicians, Black Soldiers, and Military Band Music During U.S. Colonization of the Philippines, published in 2021 by the University Press of Mississippi. The monograph focuses on the Philippine Constabulary Band, a military band organized in 1902 that served the colonial government in the Philippines until World War II. Founded and led for most of its history by Walter Loving, a black soldier in the American military, the band visited the United States four times between 1904 and 1939, and it is these visits that Toulousin examines in Instruments of Empire. Listening with what Toulousin calls the imperial ear, American commentators understood the group's command of the standard band repertory of the period not as a result of the Filipino musicians' training and skill, but as evidence of their so-called natural musical ability, which had been tamed by the allegedly civilizing influence of American colonial rule. Tracing the band's reception over time, Toulousin analyzes the cultural, political, and social causes and byproducts of American imperial ambitions. Welcome, Mary. It is wonderful to talk to you today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Kristen. I've been looking forward to our conversation.
0: Well, I will open this interview by just asking you how you came to the topic of this project. Um, Well,
1: Kristen, this uh, project was really personal to me. Um, When I was growing up in the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts, the only access I had to learning about the Philippines and Filipino culture was when my grandmother, my mom's mother, would visit us every couple of years and and stay with us for a few months. Uh, So other than that, I really had no kind of inkling about what the Philippines or Filipino Culture was all about, and whenever she visited us, she would like tell us this amazing story. She would sit us down. Um, I was a teenager at the time, and uh, she would tell us this story about her father. And she would always start it with, "My father was a great conductor. He came to the United States several times to conduct his band and play, you know, for American audiences." And I thought. Wow, that's that's really amazing. You know, how did he come here so many times when, uh, at the time, it was really difficult uh, for Filipinos to come to the United States? It was during uh, martial law, so that really intrigued me. And I had already been uh, playing the cello uh, for a number of years, um, and you know, I just wanted to find out more. And even kind of more incredibly, she said the conductor of the band, the leader, was a Black American officer. And, you know, at the time, I really saw that the treatment of African Americans in the United States was not very good. And so all of these kind of contradictions about this band really intrigued me. So fast forward, um, and I visited the Philippines for the first time in my early 20s. Um, And I just, you know, was hungry to know more about this band. And it was really difficult to find information, uh, you know, that things weren't digitized yet. So I would literally go into different archives and just scroll through, you know, microfilm to try to find out more about this band. And so, um, you know, it, it really wasn't until graduate school that I kind of acquired the tools to analyze um, what was going on uh, with this band and, and why they were so um, beloved in the early 20th century. With that, I learned about American colonization of the Philippines or U.S. colonization. And, and, you know, it really hadn't been taught to me in school. Uh, I rarely heard anything about the Philippines um, in my public school education. And so that kind of like set me on the path to learning um, more about the band's context within uh, U.S. colonization. Fast forward a little bit more. My uh, grandmother passed away. I go to graduate school at um, UCLA. And I, I definitely learned a lot more in my Philippine history class about uh, US colonization and really the impact that it had on the Philippines. And so I thought um, by looking at this Filipino military band that came to the United States, with a black American officer as its leader, what could that tell me about the experience um, of Filipinos um, during US colonization at the time? So yeah, it was, it was both a personal project to learn about my family's history and um, you know, also an intellectual endeavor to really understand the nuances and the subtleties um, in the way that US colonization impacted Filipinos.
0: I'm just fascinated that you were able to combine this academic interest with your own family history. Do you think that that personal perspective or your personal relationship with an important member of the band, you know, how did that impact the book? Um, You know, I tried to
1: put myself into my great-grandfather's shoes. My great-grandfather, Pedro B. Navarro, who was a captain in the Philippine Constabulary, he was really um, Walter Loving's right-hand man. In fact, they had a friendship that lasted way beyond uh, my great-grandfather's time in the constabulary band. Uh, They um, were even uh, having dinner together while uh, Japanese forces took over the Philippines during World War II, so I think you know I tried to place myself within um, in their shoes, and I, I tried to interpret what I thought was was going on through their minds as they traversed you know the thousands of miles across uh, not only the Pacific Ocean but across the United States. So I hope my interpretations um, of Uh, the band's experiences um, really comes through because I think perhaps that's what's lacking in some of um, uh, these, um, you know, historical views, um, really trying to look at the experience of uh, the the people that were involved.
0: Did you have access to any archival material through your family that you would not have been able to find otherwise?
1: I did. Luckily, my family held on to uh, newspaper clippings that they um, had uh, access to in the Philippines and um, And with World War II, the Manila was bombed. It was razed to the ground. And so a lot of these um, sources were simply wiped away. And so they had like magazine articles, which I thought was great for looking into how ordinary Filipinos themselves thought of the band like what what kind of pride did they take in this band during uh american domination um and what was their perspective so i had those i had uh, photographs of my great grandfather i had some letters that he wrote um and i had access to his music he uh was a composer himself and was raised in um Uh, was raised in a conservatory from a young age. So I knew that despite the way uh, American newspapers portrayed the Filipinos, saying that they had never... even touched Western instruments until the United States got there. I knew that was wrong. It was false because I had evidence that my great grandfather and certainly the other members of the band grew up in um, Western European music.
0: Well, that raises another question. it, because because it was easy for the st- uh, the press in the United States to tell all sorts of crazy stuff about this band because really, Americans don't know very much about the Philippines then or now. So maybe mm-hmm. before we really dig into the book, you could give us sort of the five-minute history of of the Philippines in terms of their engagement with the West and the colonization um, efforts and, and our history and their history with the U.S. so that we have sort of everyone's on the same page with a a background to, to understand what was going on with the band.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to in five minutes run down the whole (laughs) history of the Philippines. Well, um, you know, most people are familiar with the Philippines' uh, Spanish heritage. A lot of Filipinos have uh, Spanish last names. Uh, I don't, um, but a lot of them do. And so uh, the Spanish arrived in the Philippines in 1565. The only thing I heard about the Philippines in uh, my uh, American public school education was, you know, the story of Magellan and how some terribly savage Filipino had beheaded him. And it really left a mark on me because uh, that's the way my culture was trade or Philippine history. But we know that, you know, Lapu-Lapu was defending his island, and I'm sure we can all understand if some uh, colonizer showed up and uh, we would defend our land too. Um, But anyway, so the Spanish were there for about uh, 333 years, um, which was a long time and came to influence uh, the culture of the Philippines. And Filipinos by then had localized Spanish forms, including military band music. So in 1898, the United States um, in a large projects to expand beyond uh, the mainland uh, borders of the United States, went into Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines, Spanish-American War takes place, and McKinley decides to keep the Philippines and um, they became a formal colony. So uh, American um, or U.S. colonization lasts until just after World War II in 1946. So some 50 years, uh, Filipinos are already absorbed a lot of American culture. And uh, part of the argument in my book is that they had um, localized aspects of American culture.
0: So thank you so much for that. That is helpful. Um I wanted to first begin with some sort of um, overall themes in the book rather than um, focusing first on the four visits, because I think there are some things that come up with each visit they make and that might be um, helpful to think about in the um, sort of the longer trajectory of the book. And one was the fact that Walter Loving, the founder of the band, who was the director for most of its history but not entirely, was black and that. Um, when the uh, PC band, as you call it, so we don't have to keep saying Philippine constabulary, so when the PC band came to the U.S., the press, in covering these visits, were very strategic about whether or not they acknowledged the racial background of Loving. And you have some really interesting insights about why they did that and um, when. W- what were the reasons when they did acknowledge his racial background and when they did not. And I'd love you to tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that is definitely a theme I have in my book. Um, There are a couple of works that look at African American soldiers in the Philippines, but I don't think too many, um, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, have looked at that relationship on U.S. soil or in the mainland United States. So that is one of... uh, a theme in my book um, to look at that relationship. Uh, both African Americans and Filipinos um, were racialized in similar ways. In fact, when American soldiers were in the Philippines, they used the same derogatory language to describe Filipinos as they did uh, African Americans. So that's definitely an important theme. Now, American newspapers, I argued, um, had difficulty uh, sort of giving this grand narrative of how the United States uh, civilized Filipinos, um, because Loving's uh, identity as a Black American really made that too messy, too complicated. Um, And so often newspapers would uh, they would mention his name, but rarely, very, very rarely would they acknowledge that he was an African-American officer. And so, you know, I think that did a lot to, well, first of all, if you, uh, your racial identity wasn't mentioned, people assumed at the time that you were white. And so, you know, while his audiences in person, I don't think would have mistaken him for a white American, uh, you got to understand that there were hundreds, maybe even thousands more readers of American newspapers that would have assumed he was white. And so I think that really erased um, his achievements as a Black American officer. He was rare. I mean, there were very few um, officers that um, were at his level. And so um, I think that did a lot of of damage um, to negate the achievements of African Americans.
0: Um, another thing that you talk about a lot is how the press not only negated Loving and his contributions and the fact that he was a black conductor as well as a black officer, but also there was this constant need to try to figure out how to deal with the fact that the Filipino musicians were really good, like they could play this music very well, and they were playing uh, the kinds of music that in most cases other military bands were playing. And of course, this is the period when Sousa's band was a worldwide phenomenon. So there was already ample popularity for military bands in the U.S. And so the PC band comes over, and they're just as good as as the uh, white American band's And they didn't really know how to deal with that. So um, they had all sorts of different gambits they used to both acknowledge their skill, but also denigrate it at the same time. I'd love you to talk a little bit about about that aspect of their reception as well.
1: Yeah, sure. You know, one of the quote-unquote crazy stories my grandmother told me was that um, John Philip Sousa said that um, her father was, um, you know, one of the best musicians he had ever heard in the Philippine PC band was one of the best military bands at the World's Fairs, and that's where he would have encountered them live. Uh, And, you know, I just found that so amazing. And, you know, on some level, I didn't even believe her story, and it wasn't until maybe a decade later that I actually found quotes of John Philip Sousa saying that the PC band was was one of uh, the most amazing bands he had heard at the fair. And so, you know, in order to, um, you know, provide a narrative that U.S. colonization of the Philippines was indeed successful, um, you know, in other words, to legitimize it, uh, because at the time there were still a lot of people that doubted that that endeavor um, was worthwhile. So in order to do that, you know, they um, had... American newspapers, colonial officials really had to present the idea that it was the United States that had indeed, quote unquote, civilized Filipinos. And so to do that, they had to erase the fact that Filipinos had been playing this military band music for generations, um, definitely since uh, Spanish colonization Um and so I think there's a lot of erasure taking place in order to highlight certain aspects of the band that American newspapers wanted to portray. And so, uh, yes, Loving's identity gets erased. Uh, the fact that Filipinos had been playing European music um, for generations had to be erased in order to make that argument of uh, Americans' um, success in the colony really plausible.
0: Do you think you, you alluded to this a little bit, but I'd love to hear some more about how, um, well, there was sort of two things going on. There's this, there's on the one hand, Americans are often deeply uncomfortable with acknowledging that we are imperial nation and do have, colon you know, did have colonies. And and um, so there's that sort of ambivalence going on. But then um, there's this ambivalence about the Filipino People and how to, like, how did how to describe them to Americans and to make them sort of, um, I guess, legible to white Americans within the kind of racial hierarchy that uh, it was how they described every uh, minoritized group in the United States. Can, so that's sort of two big questions. Maybe we can start with the second one and just sort of how did they deal with trying to center these musicians within. Within that hierarchy, that white, the white press was constantly reinforcing with sort of everyone that wasn't white.
1: Hmm. Well, I had to draw a number of um, scholars who I really, really admire. Um, one was Vicente Rafael, and the other one was Paul Kramer. And Paul Kramer looks at like the novel for what he calls the novel formations about American, the way Americans uh, viewed and then also represented Filipinos. And it's really interesting because. Um, McKinley calls them little brown brothers. And so this is um, one way in which Filipinos were kind of brought into the American family, um, but also kind of subordinated um, and denigrated at the same time, little brown brothers. It's it's definitely a racial formation. Um, And so That's I think one of the ways they tried to make Filipinos acceptable to the American public, um, but at the same time, keeping them properly in their place as as subordinated min- colonial minorities, and and you know all of that gets articulated in the way American newspapers portrayed uh, the Filipino musicians of the PC band. Uh, they constantly referred to them as little brown brothers, uh, who were naturally musical, as if uh, you know. That natural, natural musicality had everything to do with the way uh, the uh, U.S. was able to successfully sort of civilize and colonize them at the same time. It, there's a lot of tension, I think, in in the these newspaper accounts and um, also the way American audiences uh, tried to just manage <laughs> the um, uh, what I think is a contradiction um, in. In the way that they saw the PC band on the one hand, they're like these great musicians, but they can't be too civilized. If they're too civilized, then they might even be equal. And if they're equal, they should have um, been uh, granted independence or at least not taken over by another country. And so really there's a lot of tension I think in in how American audiences are are trying to manage their expectations and their experiences of the PC band. Uh, in in most, if not all cases, American audiences really loved the band. They would, you know, during World's Fairs, someone even said, um, without the Philippine Constabulary Band, there is no fair. Um, and so musical audiences really took pleasure in their uh, performances their musical aesthetic um, and you know really what they thought of is uh, even a superlatively superlative demonstration of enthusiasm for American patriotic marches and and so I really tried to dig in and say well did Filipinos feel the same way? Did they think they were um, playing these American patriotic marches with the intent of being uh, patriotically American? So uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting nuances and complexities, um, I think, to, to all of these newspaper accounts.
0: Well, one thing that you just said was how you were trying to excavate what the Filipino point of view was on on this band, and it seemed that that was um, particularly difficult because there's not just not a lot of archival evidence left, partly because of destruction of documentation because of the war in the Philippines, and then partly because of archival absence here in the U.S. And I'd love for you to Uh, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, reading that archive against the grain and kind of what were your um, conclusions as best you could make them from uh, about that Filipino uh, point of view.
1: Mm-hmm. It was difficult um, at first because I really had to kind of imagine in myself and inter- in their experience, interpret that. But luckily, um, a, a African-American scholar named Claiborne T. Richardson, in fact, he wrote one of the first articles I had read on Loving uh, and the Philippine Constabulary Band called The Loving Touch. He went to the Philippines in the early 80s, I think it was 82, and interviewed um, several members of the PC band who had gone to the World's Fair in San Francisco, the Golden Gate International Exposition in 1938-39. And so I did have some insight, um, first-person accounts, uh, through um, Dr. Richardson's interviews. and. Uh, I think, you know, that provided for me some like to stand on when I was making my own interpretations. I think that uh, the way they experienced, they they were elderly by then, and um, they uh, tended to kind of, you know, it was far in the past and were a bit vague. But what Dr. Richardson couldn't do because he didn't speak uh, the language, um, was, there were all these side conversations going on between the men themselves. And, uh, they, you know, they spoke English, of course, during the interview. Um, but they had more personal things to say in their native language. And, uh, because I'd taken Tagalog classes, I lived there for a couple of years. I finally acquired, um, you know, my heritage language. I was able to, um, to, you know, translate those side conversations. And they were so fascinating that I think they really gave a window into, you know, what some of their experiences were like. And I just had the feeling that, you know, they did not see themselves in the same way that uh, American newspapers portrayed them. I think they were doing something else. They were really coming out of their own uh, experience as musicians in their own tradition. And so, yes, they were playing European overtures and American patriotic marches, but, you know measuring um, identity and culture just through a music genre is really kind of missing the whole picture. And so I wanted to see what they themselves thought they were doing, and um, what I heard was that they were playing through their own tradition. They were playing as Filipino musicians, who in some cases came from generations of band musicians. There was a deep pride in in their traditional um, their their traditions.
0: Did they, um, so you mentioned the repertory was patriotic marches and sort of European overtures and opera, um, operatic excerpts, which like every band was doing. Did they have repertoire that made them distinctive from other bands as well? Oh, great. I'm glad you asked that
1: question. Um, So. They did. They played Filipino composers. Uh, They did so right away. Their first trip to the United States was in 1904 with the St. Louis World's Fair, and they played a concert. Um, just of Filipino composers. And these Filipino composers, um, as educated, um, literate Filipinos, were writing in a style um, that would have been influenced by um, European and and particularly Spanish music, Uh, but they wrote... Pieces that indicated or at least gave a nod to their Filipino heritage. There was a piece called Sampaguita, which is um, uh, the national flower of the Philippines and is used in in every celebration and ritual that I can think of. And so they asserted their identity in those ways. Whether um, American newspapers acknowledged that or not um, was kind of mixed. Some of them said, oh, they played these fantastic, you know, overture um, and this wonderful Sousa march and then some Filipino composer. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, I wanted to dig into that more. Why did they play it? Were they lacking in repertoire? Absolutely not. I think they did it to assert their identity. They had limited options to... um, to resist the kind of domination that they came under. And so I think this was one of the ways. Um, If I could elaborate on that more, I found instances where the band put down their quote unquote instruments of empire and actually sang. There were rare occurrences, I think there were only two of them that I found, but they sang and I thought to myself, you know, why would they do that? They're not singers, I'm sure they could hold a tune, but uh, they weren't trained singers. Why would they not play sort of their best at, you know, what their expertise was? And I think it is to assert their um, identity as Filipinos. Um, A lot of things happened to them. They were away from their families for months at a time, in some cases a year at a time. And, and, you know, a couple of band members had passed away accidentally. Uh, They had feelings. They were sad. They were homesick. They perhaps were tired of being portrayed uh, as these instruments of empire in service of proving to the American public that U.S. colonization was um, was a success. And so I believe they laid down their instruments and sang in, you know, their imperfect voices precisely to um, force the audience to acknowledge their identity as Filipinos. So I was really proud at that moment when I found that. Um, and I, you know, putting myself in their shoes, I just could you know, tried to imagine what it was
0: like for them. Bringing up how the band um, uh, performed both uh, sort of standard European and American band repertory and then added um, uh, Filipino-sourced music um, and then also the singing brings up to me maybe sort of the interesting way that Loving must have led that band because he is American himself, but Black American, and the way that you're interpreting it suggests that he... um, I don't know that he had an interest, that he had not an authoritarian approach perhaps to the band. And I was wondering how much uh, you know or could glean about Loving's relationship to the band and relationship to Filipino identity and that sort of thing, because he, he did have a, such a long history with the band, certainly.
1: Yes. I think Walter Loving was a really amazing person. I mean, he uh, climbed the ranks of, um, you know, the U.S. military. He was a lieutenant when he arrived in the Philippines. And then he became lieutenant colonel in the Philippine constabulary. He had this uh, privileged place in American Manila society. That is the, you know, the the community of Americans living in the Philippines at the time. But he also encountered prejudice and discrimination as an African-American soldier. And so I think, you know, he was definitely the perfect person to understand both sides of the colonial experience. Um, he was very dedicated to, uh, his, um, Filipino bandsmen. In fact, um, from my own uh, family stories, he had uh, searched the Philippines far and wide for the best musicians. My great-grandfather was already in a band and he just kept courting him and said, no, join the Philippine Constabulary Band. Uh, we're going to be amazing. He had a vision. Uh, and he definitely took that to the United States. Now, there are other scholars who have written about um Colonel Loving, uh, particularly Robert Yoder and Claiborne T. Richardson. Um, So I didn't do a deep dive into Loving's life in the book, because I feel that uh, other scholars um, had definitely covered that. But I wanted to look focus on his relationship with the Filipino musicians. And um, what what I found that you know they really admired and respected him, it really helped that um, I found articles that said that um, Loving knew Spanish and that a lot of the Filipinos uh, spoke Spanish at the time. And so he had that rapport with his Filipino musicians. He worked them very hard. Um, there are accounts that said that men would, you know, run or do uh, physical exercises for several hours before they even went to play with the band. He really conditioned them uh, to be at their best. He didn't allow them to do anything else uh, besides be band musicians in the Philippine Constabulary. So I really kind of admire his work ethic and his um, value system. I'm in touch with his um, great-grandchildren, and uh, they're still named after him. Um, Walter um, Loving uh, is one of his uh, grandchildren. Uh, Edith Loving uh, Mm -hmm. is uh, also his great-grandchild. And so I know from their family's accounts of uh, what um, Colonel Loving valued, and he uh, just was so admirable in in uh, the values that he tried to espouse in his life and also act upon throughout his career in the Philippines. He died in the Philippines. He um, was killed during uh, when the United States came back to rescue the Philippines from the Japanese, and he died on Philippine soil. So um, really an admirable person. And so I do credit him with, um, in his own way, trying to assert the identity and um, artistry of his uh, band musicians. He, yes, he incorporated Filipino composers into the repertoire, but he also really highlighted them as individuals by performing uh pieces that had extended solos in them so he would feature um the tuba he would feature um the flute all the instruments he had several pieces on every concert that had soloists and i think you know, this could have been a musical uh, choice, but I think more importantly, this was a choice to show American audiences that these men were individuals. For so much of their uh, representation in newspapers, they just called them identical Filipino men who were somehow of diverse tribal quote-unquote backgrounds. That was really confusing to me, but I think it did two things. One is to simplify the identity of Filipinos, but then also to kind of control them by uh, providing knowledge about their specific ethnic backgrounds. And I I know this is deliberate because they would never mention Loving's identity as a Black American officer. So I really think that was deliberate. But yes, to Loving's credit, um, he really um, invested in these Filipino bandsmen and uh, the interviews from the early 80s, uh, I mean, they just had such high admiration and respect for Colonel Loving.
0: Um, I, it was really sort of a tragic end to the band and to, or certainly to to Loving's life that he uh, was, was killed. And it sounds like not really sure of all the circumstances. And like so many Filipinos, um, his body was never recovered afterwards, and I, it was just a really—he, you're, you're the—he—he he seemed to be such an exemplary person, and in, in the way that he treated this band, and then to have the, the end of his life be so violent—it it, was—it was kind of tragic. I felt really sad at the end of the book, um, and finding out that that is what happened to him. So, um, yeah, yeah, uh, so. We have mentioned many, many times now that they came to the U.S. four different times. And I thought maybe rather than trying to get really deeply into each visit, since we really talked about some of the major themes that recur each visit. Maybe we could talk about the ways in each, the ways uh, each visit was different from one another. So we had three that were to big World's Fair type events, 1904, back in 1915, and then the final trip in the late 30s. Did you see that the way that these World's Fair exhibitions portrayed the both the C, PC band and Filipinos in general, did that change over time? Or did you see that each time the way that that World's Fair institution um, uh, portrayed or depicted Filipinos kind of stayed the same?
1: Yeah, I think there were some things that stayed the same, but I think there were other things that changed. So in 1904, it was all about um, making sure that the American public uh, would see the band as, you know, the pinnacle of, um, you know, Western tut- or American tutelage in the Philippines. And you know, the World's Fair is uh, complex. It, it can't just be told through the story of the PC band. But there were uh, various tribal groups that were brought to the world's fair and the PC band was really, um, contrasted with them. Uh, there's many books on, on this topic, many great books, um, but essentially, the PC band kind of, uh, they would show, you know, the tribal people is uncivilized, then the constabulary or scouts officer was like half civilized. And then by the time you got to the um, PC band and the scouts, there was another uh, branch of the military called the Philippine scouts. They were the most civilized Um Portrayal of Filipinos. So they like drew this straight line um, from here to there. Uh, And so that was the intention overall of the 1904 World's Fair. That kind of backfired uh, by the end of the World's Fair everyone in the United States just kind of collapsed all these differences. Paul Kramer does a great job of talking about this in his book, The Blood of Empire, but they collapsed all these differences. And suddenly Filipinos were just savages, period. Uh, the American public is too much. It's just, we need Filipinos to be one thing. And so it backfired. And by 1909 or, or 1915, which is the next uh big, the Panama Pacific, um, it was really about both the United States and the Philippines trying to recapture or, um, resuscitate, um, or at least press back against the idea that all Filipinos were savages. So uh, officially they didn't even have those, um, sort of human zoos that they had in the 1904 world's fair in 1915 and so the band was really to highlight the achievements now the proof of um of the america the us's work in the philippines and also to um that filipinos themselves were uh beginning to work their way towards independence and that hinged on proving that Filipinos were civilized. So could they run a government? Could they run a government in the way that the United States saw proper? Uh, could they protect its people? And, and so on and so forth. Um, so in 1915, uh, uh, Filipinos were already um using the Philippine Constabulary Band to make their point that we are civilized already and therefore should be granted independence. Um, You know, that didn't happen until after World War II. So by 1939 and the Golden Gate um, Exposition, uh, I saw, yes, that Filipino politicians were using the... PC band is proof of the Philippines capacity uh, for self-government and the United States um, not so much proving that Filipinos were civilizable, but already that there was um, a progress in the Philippines as far as uh, their aim towards educating Filipinos and setting up their government and, and etc. cetera. Um, But I also saw something else, which is by 1939, there were already um, communities of Filipino Americans, um, Filipinos who had immigrated to the United States were in places like Stockton. They had communities in uh, San Francisco and the surrounding area. um, And Filipinos... Filipino Americans in Oakland invited the PC band to come to their restaurant and gave them a grand reception. And for them, it was proof that uh, Filipino Americans had the right to be in the United States because they could contribute. And they had all this achievement um, in the PC band. So it's they shifted depending on who was um, was using the PC band as an exemplar of, of something. So there was a lot of nuance.
0: Oh, I kind of feel sorry for the band; they never got to just go play. <laughs> they always, you know, there was someone who was always kind of trying you to use their performances to further another larger goal.
1: Right, right, and I think you know that that's why I feel that they took those small opportunities. Um, when they sang instead of playing, you know, when they, instead of playing, um, when they inserted Filipino composers into their repertoire. So, um, You know, I want to highlight one more thing, which is that um, Walter Loving, he grew up for a time in Washington, D.C. He went to the M Street High School. And when the band went to the United States to march in uh, Taft's uh, inauguration, presidential inauguration, they were invited by uh, the uh, black American elite community of Washington, D.C. D. to do a concert. Um, Mary Europe, who was James Reese Europe's sister, a famous uh, band um, conductor, the likes of those uh, African-American classical musicians who were held in high esteem, they did a collaborative concert with the PC band. I don't think anyone's ever written about that before. I just found it in newspapers. And I think for the African-American community at the time, who um, most of them had in. The ideology of racial uplift. Uh, this the PC band was an example of that of how um, Walter Loving himself had achieved so much as an African American in the realm of of classical music, which would have been considered you know the highest form of of art music at the time.
0: Um, there was one thing I wanted to bring out about the nineteen fifteen. World's Fair, or I guess it's uh, officially the Panama Pacific International Exposition, um, you um, highlighted a really disturbing element in that particular World's Fair of um, eugenics, of sort of forwarding some um, ideas about eugenics. And how did that affect the reception and um, uh, experience of the PC band?
1: Well, I think... um... I'm not exactly sure how it affected the reception because I think that the way of, of seeing the band just continued through that. Um, you know, the whole eugenics thing, it just was absolutely confusing. Um, but it, it, you know, it had it contradicted, I think, um, the band's achievement. And so to kind of um, fix that contradiction, um, they was just all the more emphasized what had been emphasized before, which is this is uh, part of the United States achievement in successfully civilizing Filipinos. Uh, They had to be civilized, but not too civilized. They can't um, exceed the civilization of, you know, white supremacy. And so the ways in which they were portrayed, such as natural musicians, I think those just became all the more emphasized. They didn't achieve because uh, they were civilized people, but because of some mythical, natural inclination towards music. And I wanna pause here just because I think some people misunderstand me. I, of course, there are wonderful and great Filipino musicians and singers. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying it's not racial. It's very much cultural. You know, the Filipino parties where somebody puts a microphone in in your hand to do karaoke when you're like three years old i mean those are all s- ways of socializing and enculturating kids into um you know a musical um you know not uh, perfection but definitely just an aptitude for um music it's skill it's really s- about skill and not sort of some natural biological <laughs> um, attribute that makes filipinos more inclined Towards music. I think all that just got emphasized in uh, 1915.
0: It well, was already there. I, right. Well, and of course, um, saying someone is a natural musician is a great way to say, and so they didn't have to work at it. And, you know, there's no real skill involved here. It's just like something that happens because they're Filipino. And then, um, you know, the, of course, we see this in the, in the way that African-American musicians in the period and I would argue still today sometimes are received where it's um, rather than saying this person went to conservatory and they practiced for many years, just like a white American would. It's, oh, that was just natural for them. It just happened. Somehow they're born with the ability to do this amazing thing. Whereas white people have to really work at it. It's all about work ethic and it's all about skill acquisition, which, which, uh, you know, it's more of a genius thing. You know, it's a thing that, that uh, only white people get to do, right? You know, and um, uh, it really denigrates the the hard work and the um, uh, the skill of of the Filipino. Musicians, Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's very well said. I,
1: and, and I'm hoping that's one of kind of the takeaways of the book is that this stuff still exists. Like you said, there are many ways that um, different groups of people are stereotyped, and those um, are. They, they have intent, they have an agenda. Um, and so while on the one hand, it seems like a compliment, like the model minority myth for Asian Americans, it seems, you know, they're smarter than everyone. It's like, no, that's not a thing. Um, it, you know, it, it, it just puts, it's a backhanded compliment that just puts that group back in their place.
0: Right. Um, The 1909 visit was a little different from the other three. They were there. They initially came to play at William Taft's um, presidential inauguration, and then they stayed for a whole year touring the U.S. And um, so since that visit was so uh, different, you know, how did they end up at this inaugural parade? And then did you, you know, tell us a little bit about um, how uh, these concerts were received and kind of that trip.
1: Yeah, well, the reason they were at the parade was because um, Taft was the governor general of the Philippines. He, in some ways, made his career in the Philippines and uh, propelled him um, into the presidency. I'm not a political scientist, so I'm just saying this as an ethnomusicologist. Um, but so that's why he invited and uh, his wife, um, Helen Taft, um, uh Dr. Gould, a musicologist, wrote a book on this and graciously sent it to me. She was one of the people that said the Philippines needs a band, just like the Marine Band. And I believe uh, she was the one that um, really encouraged her husband to officially uh, put that together and put a Philippine constabulary band as part of the Philippine constabulary. So they show up at the Taft presidential inauguration Taft, you know, it was really impressive that he put them in a, a really high, a, a place of honor in his parade. Um, I could not find another band uh, that that was foreign or was a colony that did that. And the Philippine Constabulary Band marched him from the Capitol to the White House, I might, or vice versa, sorry, blanking on that, but they had a. They were the only band that was allowed to play like Hail to the Chief. Nobody else could play it. So they had a really um, esteemed place in his inauguration. Uh, this was fantastic, but I also think that, um, you know, Taft wanted to highlight his achievement in the Philippines. He was uh, very proud of it and it was something that got him noticed as a politician. So they did that in uh, March and then they were contracted to play all around the United States. Um, and, and 1909 also was when the African American community um, hosted the PC band and they had a joint concert. Um, But from Washington, D.C., they played in a lot of different venues. So they played in symphony halls. uh, They played in New York. They played in Connecticut. And I was so excited when I read about their performances at Boston Symphony Hall, because I played there as a kid, as part of the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra. And just to think that my great-grandfather, and there's a photo of this, and I put it in the book. Uh, he's the one playing the piccolo all the way to the left. But just to see, know that he was on a stage that I had uh, played on uh, was just so exciting and such a personal like connection to this history. But anyways, in Boston, I just want to highlight this. Um, the Boston um, concert going community was really knowledgeable about uh, classical music or quote-unquote classical music. And um, they, in some ways, just couldn't believe that Filipinos in a few short years were... surprisingly amazing musicians in fact they gave the pc band test compositions now test compositions were not just for filipinos but uh european bands did them it's essentially sight reading a piece of music uh and they gave this to the filipinos because they were just couldn't believe that they were actually reading music. Reading music was a sign of civilized music making. And the Filipinos played it fine. They could definitely read music. But uh, these... Um, Myths circulated around them because at the 1904 World's Fair, the lights went off and they kept playing. And it was miraculous because other bands had to quit playing their concerts and the PC band kept going. So in the minds of many, many Americans who thought that Filipinos were savages, how was that possible? Well, it must be because they're not playing music, but they're just mimicking the music. So those test compositions in Boston proved that the Filipino musicians could indeed read music, but it also indicated for me that they were continuing a band tradition that was theirs from the Philippines. In order to prove that you were... um, a superior musician in the Philippines, you had to memorize all your pieces. If, if b- whole bands could play like hundreds of pieces by memory, and you know, for Westerners looking on the outside, w- there was doubt: <laughs> Are they really playing music, or are they just mimicking music because they can't read it? Well, they could. Um, so, I think they continued their band tradition in the United States. That's one of my main arguments. Hopefully. Um, I didn't give it away. But anyways, they went from Boston, uh, they went to Chicago, a couple of places in the Midwest, and then they went um, back to San Francisco and, um, and uh, oh, Seattle, sorry, in 1909. So they, they played a lot of different venues. I'm sorry, one more. I forgot about Atlantic City. Atlantic City, New Jersey was really a place for entertainment and audiences loved them there. I don't have all the pieces that they played, but I suspect they played a lot of popular pieces, not just European overtures, but probably a lot of the popular pieces that were around during that time and that may have even been considered ragtime.
0: Well, one of the things that I appreciated about your book is that its I think it's very easy from the outside to say, a Filipino band playing European and American music—that is an example of imperial oppression. Full stop. Rather than taking into account that 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 musicians can make music that that maybe didn't come out of you know wasn't born on the very land they were born on too, right? And make it their own repertoire and make it meaningful for themselves within their own lives and their own careers and and conceptions of themselves as musicians it's too it's too easy to see it as a binary and um to understand that it's never as simple as you know uh, as as it as we might want to imagine that uh that it is that it wasn't just about being oppressed but also about about taking this music for their own and and um Uh, feeling that it was an important repertoire for their own uh, uses as musicians.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, In analyzing that, it was really useful for me to have a, you know, a background in ethnomusicology because um, we're, we're taught to look at the musical performance or the musical experience from a number of different ways. And so it's not just about what genre they're playing, but how they're playing it um, and and what res- resides in their own minds about what they're doing. Um, and so for me, I definitely think, think that there are concrete examples that the Filipinos were playing in their own tradition, despite uh, whatever musical genre they were playing it. whether that was American patriotic tunes or opera overtures, um, the way they were playing it was definitely uh, Filipino.
0: So that was exciting
1: for me to, to discover, I think.
0: Well, this is an excellent conversation, and I'm so glad that we were able to really sort of dig into all the complexities of the analysis in your book. Um, This clearly was a labor of many, many years, and now that it is out, uh, what sort of projects are you working on now?
1: Yeah, I have a couple of different projects. It's really interesting because um, this was not the subject of my dissertation. In fact, for most of my time at UCLA, I was um, studying music of the Maguindana, who are a Muslim Filipino group in the south of uh, the Philippines, and looking at their indigenous music called Kulintang. So um, I um, have published an article um well, several on Maguindanao music. Um, and recently, uh, I co-produced um, a CD called Kulintang Kultura, Danongan Kalanduyan and Gong Music of the Philippine Diaspora for Smithsonian Folkways. I'm really excited about that. It just came out. Um, it has both traditional tong music, which is gong music, as well as Filipino Americans' interpretation of traditional cooling Tong music, so it's a, um, it is really kind of, um, uh- Embraced, you know, all the diversity of Philippine music making on that end, and also I'm working on a project for Arcadia Publishing called Filipinos in Greater Boston. Um, my many of my parents' friends were of this community and time period in which Filipino um, immigrants and their American-born children were really a develop developing the community of uh, Filipinos in Greater Boston. So it's a uh, photographic history um, of them. And so I'm really excited to be working on that as well. And uh, it should come out probably next year.
0: Well, both those projects sound so exciting, particularly the recording. How wonderful. I definitely will check that out. Thank you. Oh, great. So thank you again for joining me. My name is Kristen Turner, and I've been talking to Mary Talusin about her new book, Instruments of Empire, Filipino Musicians, Black Soldiers and Military Band Music During U.S. Colonization of the Philippines, published in 2021 by the University Press of Mississippi. Thank you so
1: much, Kristen.